Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. You can find the Katie Halper Show on iTunes where you can rate and review us. You can also find us on SoundCloud, find us on Facebook, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show where you'll get access to extended interviews and extra episodes. Save the date and buy your tickets May 10th at Littlefield. The Katie Halper Show will be doing a live show with our friends the Struggle Session podcast. That's Leslie Lee and Jack Allison. So these two great shows will be coming together for one night only, for now, uh, one night only live taping of the Katie Halper Show and Struggle Session with amazing special guests, including Rolling Stones, Matt Taibbi, Jamie Peck, the co-host of the podcast, The Antifada, also a journalist in her own right, and stand-up comedian Jake Flores, who's also the co-host of the podcast, Pod Damn America. That's Friday, May 10th at Littlefield in Brooklyn. On this show, you'll be hearing from four different people. First, you'll hear from two people, a former editor and writer from the Center for American Progress's Think Progress publication. They shared the experiences of working there under Neera Tandon and talk, of course, about the beef between Center for American Progress and Bernie Sanders. And the reason we're talking about that is because this past weekend, Bernie Sanders finally hit back, not physically, although Neera Tandon, we now know, thanks to a New York Times article, has actually hit her employers or shove them as she says someone said that she punched one she says that she shoved him so he metaphorically hit back at center for american progress over a really bad video that they um, put out which attacked him for being a millionaire while being a socialist sanders was sent the organization a letter criticizing them for the, for playing a quote-unquote destructive role in the critical mission to defeat donald trump Tandon, in turn, admitted that the video was overly harsh, but she insisted that Think Progress is editorially independent of CAP. Uh, also, her mother got in on the act and said in a New York Times interview, those Bernie brothers are attacking her all the time, but she lets them have it too. I actually literally thought for a second, uh, I thought she meant Bernard and Larry Sanders, but she meant, of course, Bernie bros. Then we talked to Rebecca Vilkomerson of Jewish Voice for Peace, a national organization working to bring progressive Jewish values to work for a just and lasting peace in the Middle East, basically. Make sure you check out the Patreon-only interview I did with Zed Jelani, where he talks about being yelled at by Nir Tandon for writing about a conflict of interest that Mayor Michael Bloomberg had. Zed also talks about how John Podesta pressured him against writing about Afghanistan in a critical way. And Zed also talks about the real difference in political policy and outlook between the near attendant Hillary Clinton, Obama wing of the Democratic Party and the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party. That's not really a wing, it's just Bernie. Bernie and other insurgent candidates. And again, to do that, just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Okay, so I think we have our first um, couple, first set of guests on, on the line. Um, Zed Jelani and Ben Amberster. Are you guys there? Uh, yes, I'm here. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Zed. Hey, Ben. How are you guys? Good. How are you? Good. Um, so both of you are former employees of Think Progress. Um, ben, you're now at Win Without War. And Zed Jelani, a former Intercept journalist, you are now at uh, Berkeley doing, um, working on a cool project about what bipartisan relations. 
polar, social and political polarization. So, yeah, it's about parties, but also uh, beyond parties. Great. Okay. Yeah, I made it sound like it was a dating website, so apologies for that. <laughs> um, but can you guys explain to people, um, so that this isn't just kind of an inside baseball thing, what happened between the um, Center for American Progress, what they are, and why this whole kind of um, beef with Bernie is important? I'll let you take that. Okay, one. yeah, and I'll, I'll because you guys aren't here. I'll say Zed. Can you answer that? And then I'll say Ben. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that um, I guess a good question actually is where do you want to start because the timeline goes back right. quite a bit. So, well, so where, where is it? Well, you first, like to just to set it up, we're talking about um, a think tank called Center for American Progress, which is one of the biggest liberal think tanks in the United States. Right. It's very Clinton aligned. And they have um, a website called Think Progress, where both of you wrote and edited. Ben, you edited there, right? And Zed, you wrote there? That's right. Um, yeah. And, and it's in the news because the head of the um, think tank is Neera Tandon, and she's a very um, extremely online person. And um, it's been in the news because Think Progress, which is the blog that they run, the website they, they run, wrote a hit piece against Bernie Sanders for being a millionaire. And then they made a video, Bernie Sanders, saying millionaire, billionaire, implying that once he became a millionaire, he stopped going after millionaires and only went after billionaires. Um, there's this very weird narrative that says that Bernie Sanders is a hypocrite because it turns out he made a lot of money off of his book, his books. And the narrative is that because he wants people to pay more in taxes or their fair share in taxes – and he is technically a millionaire. He's a hypocrite. Of course, what would make him a hypocrite would be if he had said, everyone but me should pay more taxes. So he's not actually a hypocrite. Anyway, we can get into that later. But the point is they went after him. And Bernie, in a rare move, his campaign actually responded in a letter. And, and that's rare because Bernie does try to stay above the fray. But this time, I guess, w why do you think it's so significant? And yes, uh, Zed, wherever you, you're a journalist. So tell us where you would like to start the story. Yeah, I mean, so Ben and I both worked at Think Progress, which was kind of the weblog hosted by the Center for American Progress. Center for American Progress is a very influential think tank. Um, it's technically nonpartisan, but more much more influential among Democrats than Republicans. They typically staff Democratic administrations. They certainly staff a big part of Obama's administration. Um, and they have uh, Think Progress is kind of part of CAP Action, or Center for American Progress Action, which is kind of their more political side, which does a lot of political communications. Uh, so I think when Sanders' team saw that video up, basically they saw that as this action-oriented part of the think tank coming out there and criticizing them. And there's all there's this long background of the leadership of the Center for American Progress is more towards the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, Neera Tandon, in particular, the head of the Center for American Progress, is very anti-Sanders on social media and on I think on, on cable television as well. And so there was this long background, and actually the same day that Bernie Sanders released his health care plan, uh, the Center for American Progress, including the Tandon, did a long off-the-record call with reporters attacking the plan, undermining it because they have their own plan that's competing. So they're, they're largely viewed as a competing faction of the Democratic Party. While they were doing that, uh, at the same time, Neera Tandon is very vocally making this message uh, that Democrats shouldn't attack each other, they shouldn't compete with each other, uh, they shouldn't, they just lay off each other. She spent a lot of time last year saying that people shouldn't be writing articles critical of Better Work. I wrote an article critical of Better Work, doing some critical reporting on him. So, so, so in some ways, I think no, this was... This, just to pause really quickly, listeners may remember that there was this whole 
<coughs> excuse me, narrative online and in actual real newspapers, real media, real magazines, real websites, saying that there was an attack um, spurred on by Sanders supporters against Beto O'Rourke. There was a huge conflagration of articles about that, and that was based on largely on Neera Tandon, the head of this think tank, tweeting negatively about um, a tweet from <laughs> journalist David Sirota. Um, just to give the, the context. So, yes, so so things yeah. online uh, go offline. Yeah, so basically I think Sanders camp, they, they wrote a letter to the head, of, to, to the board of CAP saying, hey, you guys talk a game about unity, but you're attacking us here. Uh, the board, initially CAP kind of defended the video um, to some extent, but then one of the board members, Tom Steyer, who's actually a billionaire, a uh, Democratic donor, came out and said, hey, I actually didn't like that video. So then Cap kind of backed off a little bit and apologized, um, which is really interesting because Cap has been making this argument for years that money doesn't influence them. And they're, again, you know, corporate donors or foreign government donors, they don't know those matter. But as soon as their billionaire board member says, I think we went a little too far, then they're like, oh, OK, you're right. He's right. Yes, of course, we went too far. So <laughs> I thought it was a little interesting natural experiment in terms of the influence of, of money on, on Cap. So... So did they apologize or what, how did they respond to, to Stare? I mean, they just basically said something like it was overly critical or harsh or something that the video that, that they made, um, they kind of conceded that point uh, publicly. But, you know, it, I, I think this is something that's going to be ongoing uh, simply because I think they are just a competing faction of people within kind of a political coalition. And I think that, uh, you know, we, I don't think we're going to we're going to see the, the Sanders cap war end, end anytime soon. And one of the big discussions right now, um, and Ben, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, is the idea of whether or not this blog, this website, is independent of the think tank that it's run by. And so one of the responses from the think tank from um, Center for American Progress is that they have no editorial control over Think Progress, their website, their blog. So when there are these hit pieces against Sanders and when there are these um, videos against Sanders, they have no control over it, right? It has nothing to do with Center for American Progress. But there's been some pushback on that by people who've actually worked there. So can you share your experiences there, Ben? Yeah, so this is this is the other side of this story, is this editorial independence issue. And, you know, I'll get into the to the backstory on this, but I think up front, you, ha- you kind of have to recognize that both sides, the Center for American Progress, the Center for Amer- the, and the Action Fund, as well as Think Progress, have, all have an interest in you know presenting this persona as think progress as, as editorially independent because like when these things happen and you know the those that are being attacked on think progress go and, and turn criticize cap you know cap can throw up their hands and say oh well it's not us right uh, and, and and sort of vice versa but but to, to, to step back a little bit on this issue um, you know the reason one of the reasons why think progress uh, is so invested in this editorial independence it goes back a, a number of years to the time when Zed and I were there. And, um, you know, this is a whole long story, but back in 2011, 20, 2012, we were, you know, we were viciously smeared and attacked for some of the things we were writing uh, on Iran and Israel. And in response to that, um, you know, Cap the think tank led by Neera Tandon and, and other senior staffers were, you know, vigorously monitoring what we wrote and censoring the things that we wrote on Iran and Israel to placate those who were attacking us. And it was a very, you know, sort of serious and traumatic time for for all of those involved. And, and since then, you know, because all of this stuff sort of leaked to the press, you know, Think Progress has has been, um, you know, they started they started to like 
you know, work harder towards, you know, this perception of editorial independence. And to their credit, you know, after we left, um, you know, the, the, and, and Think Progress writers unionized, they, they sort of had it stipulated in their contract that, you know, there is editorial independence from Think Progress and CAP. Now, that, that's great. And, and I think that that achievement has essentially, you know, built, built a little bit of a wall between Think Progress and Center for American Progress, at least the one that wasn't there before. So that's a good thing. The, the thing, that, the thing that, I, that I sort of like posit is that, you know, what, how far does this editorial independence go? Because, you know, yes, while, while Nira and CAP senior staffers probably aren't meddling in the day-to-day affairs of Think Progress, but like at the same time, you know, how, how, how vigorously are Think Progress reporters sort of looking into the inner workings of CAP? And, uh, you know, I would argue that they are they aren't really much at all because there's a lot of stuff to report about the corruption that's going on within CAP that I, I don't think Think Progress really touches so much. So so that's an issue that I think that needs to be explored a little bit more. They went after him about being a millionaire in a video and in a very embarrassingly written um, piece. And they are allegedly they allegedly do journalism. Um, both of you work there. And tell us more about um, the relationship between um, Center for American Progress and its donors. And also, there was a, actually the New York Times has picked up this story, and they have a story where they tell the, about how, um, and this is interesting because um, the Fed Shakir, who is now the head of, he's the campaign director of Bernie Sanders' campaign. He used to work for Think Progress too, right? He was, I think, one the the editor. Um, yeah, he was the editor in chief. The editor in chief, and there's a story in the New York Times about how he, at a campus Pro- Center for American Progress event, asked Hillary Clinton a question about her vote on the Iraq War. And at the end of said event, when it was done, apparently Nira Tandon circled around to the back of the room and punched him in the chest. Now she says that she just shoved him or pushed him. She didn't punch him. But did you guys know about that at the time? Was that big uh, water cooler chatter? I had not heard about this until I read that story. Um, you know, but I mean, you know, I think the way that Nira, I, I don't even think I was there at the time when that happened. So, but I, you know, I, I think that Nira, you know, didn't really make a lot of friends with some of us. Um, you know, given her response to the way that we were being smeared in the media for our reporting on Iran and, and Israel. And, and I just want to say one thing. I mean, I, you know, I think you said that, that you know, think progress reporters are allegedly journalists. I, I, I just want to make clear, there are a lot of really smart, good reporters at Think Progress that do a lot of good work. Um, so I just want to be upfront about yeah, that. Yeah, and um, I'd want to emphasize that for the, the whole think tank. I think Ben and I both agree that... Uh, you know, everything we're saying about the think tank doesn't mean that there aren't people at the think tank who work very hard, who have very passionate beliefs, uh, who really try to improve the world. And I think, in a sense, it's like a microcosm of the U.S. government. There's people I know people who work in the administration right now who I think are making a sincere effort to do their jobs well. Uh, but there are corrupting influences in government, and the same thing kind of exists in think tanks, which are kind of a microcosm of, of governments. Right. Yeah, and I should, I should yeah. explain. When I was saying journalism, I was referring to that particular piece, which I thought was such a hit piece and such a oh, smear. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> That's what I meant. And in fact, what's funny is that, you know, I used to have, I used, I signed up like years ago 
by accident to like, no, I think on purpose because I like Think Progress so much. This was like pre-Bernie that I like Think Progress so much that I would actually automatically um, retweet them on Twitter. Like I signed up for something to do that. Then I stopped doing it. <laughs> Politics aside, I think it was just annoying. It was too much. But um, no, there is great journalism that comes out of it. And of course, like many websites or many people who, uh, you know, I'll look at their uh, what they say or hear what they say. And, you know, it's like 70 percent. I'm like, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then once it gets to the the Sanders-Clinton divide, obviously Clinton's not running, but to the two wings of the Democratic Party. I'm like, what? Anyway. Yeah, and it's and it's not only that, and 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 I'll sort of you know sort of contrast what what I just said and what Zed just said, you know, giving them compliments. On, on the other side of that, you know, in that story that you just referenced about Nira punching Faz in the chest, there was another really interesting interesting bit of information that was published for the first time, which is that since um, 2016 through the end of 2018, CAP um, accepted $2.5 million from the UAE, um, which of course is, yeah, the United Emirates, which of course is allied with Saudi Arabia as a, you know, sort of ridiculously poor human rights record. Um, you know, have been waging this, uh, uh, you know, awful war in Yemen for, for years and causing, you know, one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world. And, you know, so hearing that news kind of, you know, sort of explains why, you know, the Center for American Progress largely sat out of the fight to pass the war powers resolution on Yemen. Um, so it's that it's that kind of stuff that I think Zed and I are talking about. It's like there are lots of great people who do lots of lots of great work there, and I think that that's probably like eighty percent of what's going on. But then there's this sort of other smaller twenty percent that like you know is is like corrupt and 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 just really distasteful. Yeah, and what about, can you guys talk about their relationship with um, Israel or with um, Netanyahu? Because I know that there are people who are very upset about um, Netanyahu right. and hosting him. I don't think that there is a direct foreign government relationship the way there was one with the UAE. I mean, I wrote several stories for The Intercept about, based off of emails from, uh, hacked emails from the UAE ambassador's inbox that showed that, you know, senior staff at CAP were literally helping the UAE lobby the Trump administration. They were helping organize trips overseas to the UAE government uh, to promote their policy agendas. I mean, they were deeply in bed with, with the UAE and they were all being funded by the UAE. I don't think a similar thing exists with Israel. I, I view that more as a domestic politics thing. So, um, I and, you know, Ben can also speak to this, but I think in the Democratic Party in particular, during a certain moment in the Obama administration, there was a very harsh kind of fight back and push back to hem in the Obama administration to make sure they didn't pressure Israel very much. Mm-hmm. And I think CAP was viewed, pressuring CAP was viewed as part of that campaign. And so there were folks influential in the Democratic Party who are very pro-Israel, for instance, Ann Lewis. Uh, at one point, I think Alan Dershowitz even like got mad internally at CAP and they like hired a PR firm to talk to him and like talk him down and everything. But part of that, part of responding to all these influential people within the Democratic Party who are very pro-Israel was kind of tamping down on internal dissidents within CAP because particularly when, when we're, the, the period that we're talking about, which is like 2011, 2010, at that point, there was very little criticism of, the, of Israel from the Democratic Party. Like right now, what's happening right now with Bernie Sanders and even better work saying some stuff, uh, it's a very different political environment. And I think back then there was intense pressure to not really say too much on that. And a lot of that is coming from people within the Democratic Party who historically are influential and very pro-Israel, people who are close to Hillary Clinton, like Ann Lewis and, and Dershowitz, and also just, uh, you know, obviously APAC, ADL, 
all these organizations that have kind of tried to keep a taboo about this issue. Right. Um, and they just, you know, they created a, a difficult environment at CAP. And I think Neera Tandon was, I think she was just very, you know, I think internally she probably just thought, hey, in politics, you just can't say that much about Israel. It'll cause a lot of trouble. So we need we need to we need to to be cognizant of that fact. You know, she treated it as more like a political operation than I think kind of a uh, independent journalist or kind of a free flowing think tank that can just work out the ideas about this uh, when it came to that issue. Right. And what were you guys there when she um, invited Netanyahu to speak at an event? No, I was not. Uh, Zed, were you? No, no, I I was gone by that point. Oh, okay. That's too bad. You could have asked him a question. You could have had your pictures taken with him and uh, had him sign. Uh, uh, well, I well, you know, that event was a good good uh, point, though, because if you read the uh, the Podesta email and WikiLeaks, you'll yeah, see so that. Just, Neera to Tandon, just to explain that. Um, yeah. So Neera Tandon and the Center for American Progress, they were big part of they they were their documents were part of the WikiLeaks dump. Um, in fact, I think Neera Tandon des- described you as a freak. Zed. Is that what it was? Congratulations. Well, you know, I'll say that angry. you don't have to. People, people get, you know, I know, and you're very fair about this stuff. I don't, I don't hold it, I don't hold it against her or whatever. But um. it just happens to be funny. And in full disclosure, I, I feel like as a journalist, you know, as a, as a, as this very serious journalism show, which you're appearing on right now, we have to share that. Um, but um, I cut you off. So you were saying that you reviewed these for yeah. The so I mean, wh- I mean, what was in the what was in some of the WikiLeaks emails is that you'll see that. Nira Tandon actually viewed inviting Benjamin Netanyahu as something that helped her recruit a board member who was very pro-Israel. And of course, board members, their whole job is basically to give money and raise money. Uh, So, you know, that is another, you know, that is another kind of look into how some of these folks operate, just like politicians or like governments. Sometimes think tanks view, you know, raising money as part of keeping, you know, the lights on. And I think sometimes they're willing to compromise other values in order to do that. Right. In fact, in the in the the leaked documents, we see that she emailed um, John Podesta that she knew that there was pushback about hosting Netanyahu. But then once she got this donor on board, right, she said it was worth it. The BB thing was worth it. Smiley face. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning it it worked to bring someone in. Jonathan Levine, I believe is his name. He's a donor. Um, mm-hmm. Big pro-Israel guy, quote unquote pro-Israel. Um and why do you think there is such a, why is this so important? Like, why is Center for American Progress so threatened by someone like Bernie Sanders? What's this all about? Uh, Zed, you want to respond and then Ben, and then we'll. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it is important to make a distinction. I think there's probably a number of people at CAP today who are going to vote for Bernie Sanders, who did last time, uh, particularly some of the younger, more idealistic people, so on and so forth. But I think. You know, one thing you have to realize about CAP, and the same thing holds true for Heritage Foundation on the, the right wing side of the aisle, is that sometimes these think tanks, they kind of serve as launching pads for people to work in government. And so I think a lot of these folks were really ready to work for Hillary Clinton in 2016, and they thought Bernie Sanders had no chance. And I think that's why a lot of the leadership was so harsh against Sanders. And I think that's kind of their worry now, that if Sanders takes power, he is going to pursue single-payer health care, which they are opposed to. He's going to pursue a very different foreign policy than they are supporting. And so it's almost kind of like, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of protecting their career turf as well, as well as their ideological turf. And, you know, that's a very, very powerful thing in Washington when you have people who worked there for 20 or 30 years, like Neera Tandon, who worked as a junior staffer for Bill Clinton, worked for Hillary Clinton, worked for Obama, so on and so forth. 
I, you know, that is a very, very powerful incentive to, to how they operate. And I think that that does actually explain a, a quite, quite a bit of what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's right. And, you know, I also think that there's a lot of, you know, sort of hangover from 2016 going on here too, right? Like if, 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 a, if someone not named Bernie Sanders um, was running for president and essentially like is ta- have, ha- and essentially has the same message and, and offering the same policy proposals, I don't think that there would be, I don't think that there would have been much animosity toward from Cap towards this, you know, fictional, you know, presidential candidate. But there, there definitely is a little bit of a hangover here. I mean, I think that the, I think the Hillary land still feels a little bit aggrieved because, you know, they saw Sanders as, you know, you know, roughing up Hillary before the general election and all that sort of stuff. So I think there's a little bit of that, and I think there's a little bit of you know, sort of personal stuff going on that's, you know, been been simmering for, you know, more than a decade. But also at the same time, like you said, like this, uh, uh, this piece that Think Progress did was awful. It was just, it was just terrible. And, and what better way for the Bernie Sanders campaign to, uh, uh, you know, to highlight the point that it's been making yeah. that, you know, you know, corporate interests and, and establishment interests are trying to work against him. Like, what better way to do that than to call them out on this and then start raising money? I mean, I think it was a really good move on their Yeah, part. it was a good move, right? And, of course, they're being blamed for opening up old wounds as if the attack video... I mean, it's kind of victim-blaming. Like, they went after Sanders, and then he responded. Um, he, he's someone who really doesn't. He stays above the fray, as we all remember, although some people, I guess, don't remember, or I'm not sure what it is. I think people have some kind of derangement when it comes to to Bernie but one should remember that he famously said enough about the goddamn emails um yeah so he's a pretty you know issues oriented guy but this as you said it's a good way to this is a part of the issues right because one of his issues is not letting um the corporate wing of the democratic party be ascendant um yeah. Paul well as Paul yeah Paul, I, I think yeah yeah, and I think that I think that for Bernie and for Bernie's camp, I think it was really more about that than than you know this sort of near averse oh yeah you know faz or you know I think it was more about that and I, and I think also you know this probably isn't really going to happen again you know you've you've already seen you know you already mentioned how how Nira you know said that uh, you know the, the 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 piece in question was overly harsh uh, you've seen um, staffers from Bernie and Nira on Twitter sort of like. You know, easing tensions and saying thank you for your response and all right. this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think going forward, you know, it's going to be much more amicable. Uh, and this was just more, I think, maybe just for Bernie to to pump up his message a little bit. Nice. Well, great job. And guys, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, Zed, where can they find you? Then Ben. Yeah. Um, well. I have a uh, so one you can read my work at Greater Good uh, Science Center at Berkeley uh, where I work where I write about polarization. Uh, also, I have a podcast called Extremely Offline where we kind of do cross partisan, uh, cross tribal uh, discussions, which you can you can see it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher. So so that that would be great too. Great. And um, Ben? And I would, I would encourage your listeners to go to winwithoutwar.org. Um, we are a uh, an organization that promotes progressive foreign foreign policies and a vision. Um, And I'm on Twitter uh, at Benjamin J.A. 
Great. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's a really great transition to go from this part of the discussion in particular to our next segment, because I'm going to be speaking to Rebecca Vilkomerson from Jewish Voice for Peace and a student organizer from NYU named Sarah. Um, so this dovetails really nicely from the um, BB discussion. Really excited to have two guests live in the studio. Rebecca Vilkomerson is the director of Jewish Voice for Peace and Sarah is a student organizer at NYU. Um, and it's really cool because I actually saw both of you Monday night at an event at NYU where, Rebecca, you spoke. Rebecca Wilkomerson is the executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace, which is a leading national organization inspired by Jewish tradition to work for a just peace for all the people of Israel and Palestine. She's been a member of JVP since 2001 and executive director since, since 2009. She's widely published by numerous media outlets, including the LA Times, CNN, The Nation, The Hill, Huffington Post. In 2010, she was named one of the 50 most influential Jewish American leaders by the Ford, and was named one of the 50 most American Jewish leaders worldwide by the Jerusalem Post in 2017. Um, two students from NYU spoke, uh, Mark Lamontel spoke, and then Omar Barghouti spoke via Skype, because he is the guy who, founded BDS, Boycott, Divest, Sanction, and um, the United States won't let him come in to the country, even though he had visa, a visa and was going to come. This U.S. entry ban against me, which is ideologically and politically motivated, is part of Israel's escalating repression against Palestinian, Israeli, and international human rights defenders in the BDS movement for freedom, justice, and equality. Israel is not merely continuing its decades-old system of military occupation, apartheid, and ethnic cleansing. It is increasingly outsourcing its outrageous McCarthyite repression to the U.S. and to xenophobic far-right cohorts across the world. Supporters of Israeli apartheid in the U.S. are desperately trying to deny U.S. lawmakers, media, diverse audiences at NYU, Harvard, Uncle Bobby's bookstore in Philadelphia, and at Tzedek Chicago Synagogue, their right to listen firsthand to a Palestinian human rights advocate calling for ending U.S. complicity in Israel's crimes against our people. But all my speaking engagements will proceed as planned, albeit via screen. One thing that this ban deprives me of and that I cannot compensate is the right to be at my U.S.-based daughter's wedding. I am hurt, but I'm not deterred. With the evolving intersectional links connecting BDS for Palestinian rights with the struggles of communities of color, indigenous Americans, women activists, Jewish millennials, trade unionists, academics, artists, LGBTQ groups, students, anti-war movements, and others, we shall prevail. We shall intensify our common fight against fascism and racism in all its forms through our moral consistent struggle for justice, for dignity, and for a life that is worth living, as our late poet Mahmoud Darwish once said. Thank you. And you can't go to Israel, Rebecca, right. so yeah. it's kind of a frustrating, um, you know, uh, Romeo, political Romeo and Juliet story, <laughs> if you will. But that was a great talk, and I wanted to thank you guys for doing that. Also, just talk about what what organizing you guys are doing, what what the status of your BDS organizing is. Um, and also, though, something interesting is that Sarah, who's in, in the studio right now, I wanted to start with you, if that's okay. 
you um didn't want your last name to be used and can you explain to listeners why that is yes so um i've been a part of the uh, palestinian human rights activism for a while now uh, especially at nyu um and something that has repeatedly happened is i have been verbally attacked uh by people that are sort of opposed to my political stance in this uh, situation. Um, and I also have friends who have been subject to, uh, you know, constant harassment, uh, like on a, online and in person. And I think just for my own physical health as well as, uh, or physical safety as well as mental health, uh, I really would not like to open right. <laughs> sort of the floodgates to uh, for their harassment at this moment. And can you talk about that website, Canary? Canary Mission? Mission? Yeah. Yes. Um, there's a website called Canary Mission uh, that, you know, it says its mission is to sort of out anti-Semitic uh, professors and activists and students. Um, it really focuses on college campuses, but goes larger than that, too. Um, and really what it does is it... Uh, it profiles students that are part of activist organizations such as Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voices for Peace, um, and sort of gives a lot of information about them. Oftentimes pulls up old photos of them right. <laughs> that aren't particularly flattering. And um, uh, it's it's something that, you know, if, if somebody is going into a job interview uh, and somebody, they got their prospective employer Googles them, uh, the first thing that'll come up is often this profile that's calling them an anti-Semite, right. when oftentimes it's just that they are a Palestinian human rights activist. Right. A lot of these students are Jewish themselves. Um, right. I myself am Jewish, and right. I think I've been lucky enough to avoid uh, having my picture on this uh, this website, but it is something that I'm very cautious of because of that. Right. And we, get the, we have the honor as uh, Jews of being called like self-loathing. I mean, they will call us anti-Semitic, but it's we have somewhat of a buffer, I think. Um, and Rebecca, you actually yesterday one of the things you talked about was using our privilege um, as as like Ashkenazi Jews. Um, so, can you talk about um, what you guys are working on now, and and I guess how people listening can be um, whether they're Jewish or not Jewish, different roles that people can play in this movement. Yeah, so in terms of the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, specifically BDS, as mm-hmm. we call it, um, I think one of the great things about it as a tool is that for organizing is that it's both an educational opportunity and then once people get educated and motivated and activated, there's opportunities for action. And that those like opportunities for action are always very localized and very specific to the communities that people are in. So one of the first BDS campaigns that JVP was involved in was trying to get um, the pension fund TIIF to divest Um, among other companies from Caterpillar. Um, And so in talking to people about Caterpillar, we were able to talk about home demolitions, we were able to talk about um, Rachel Corey's death, we were able to talk about um, land expropriation. You know, so there's an opportunity to to explain the reason why we're choosing a target, which helps people understand the conditions that Palestinians are facing, and then say, okay, now you have something to do about it because this, your pension company, in this example, is invested in Caterpillar and you have the power as a a person who has shares in this pension fund 
to make noise about that. So similarly, like the NYU students just had an incredible victory where they got they organized their student council to pass a divestment bill. So the way BDS works is allows people to do that organizing, which really raises a lot of awareness, brings more people in, and then also um, creates these opportunities for action. And the other great part about it, of course, is that it's global. Right. So there's this sort of boomerang effect of wins. One of the um, things that Omar Barghouti talked about last night was the sort of global win against Veolia. And that was really, um, it was about Veolia's investment in the light rail um, connecting Jerusalem to the settlements. But it was based on campaigns that were happening mostly all over Europe, because Veolia is a European country. Um, there were some campaigns here, too. But the wins um, in each country helped to make that ultimate win. Right. Um, so it's really about supporting each other globally and being aware of what we're each other are doing globally and how to build these campaigns and um, to the point of winning them. Um, I could talk a little bit about JVP's BS campaigns. Yeah. Um, we do a lot of support work, so like NYU JVP chapter. Um, with, and that's with, Jewish Voice for Peace, for people peace. just okay. tuning in. Yes, yeah. thank you. Um, it, the NYU JVP is part of was part of a big coalition that Sarah can talk about of groups, a really incredible coalition, very uh, multiracial, multiethnic, multi-religious, um, interfaith, um, really impressive organizing of like how, and it shows how broad the support for um, BDS campaigns I think are growing in all, in particular on college campuses, but really everywhere. Um, but we do a lot of support work um, when we have our um, member chapters and stuff like that who are involved in specific campaigns locally. The we did have a big uh, win in the fall, um, which was after about two or three years of organizing that we did within a big coalition, it wasn't at all just us, to get Airbnb to withdraw from um, the settlements. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, last week they reversed that decision. Yeah. And it's actually a pretty interesting story and kind of pretty typical for how we do two steps forward, one step right. back. Um, what happened was they got sued. Um, and basically they got bullied into reversing their decision. Wow. And I think that this is not the end of the story. The Center for Constitutional Rights is, gonna oh, sue, is already great. in the process of suing back. Um, but you know, did, so who sued them? What were the? Um, I don't remember who it was exactly, but there's a whole penelope of yeah. you know what we call lawfare organizations that are using these sort of suits um, right. in a very very I have to say smart way. Right, of course. Is your yeah. corporation like Airbnb, and do you want to right. face the you know face a, a, a long drawn out lawsuit to enforce a policy that was kind of being forced on you anyway? You know, just it changes the right. the the balance of, of things that they're that they're factoring in. So I think lawfare we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, we're seeing all kinds of sort of nuisance lawsuits against humanitarian organizations that um, offer aid in Gaza, for example. Um, and so I think it's really, it's a, it's a very strong tactic. And I think about it on a continuum with Canary Mission, you know, because they're all silencing and bullying right. intimidation tactics. Yeah, exactly. It's not about having a substantive argument. It's right. about shutting down the conversation. So that's right. also yeah. in the same way that there's all these anti-BDS bills being passed in states around the country. Um, also part of the silencing and bullying intimidation. And you, we could, I think we can look at it in some ways showing like we're winning the argument. Right. Very much so. Um, and we're seeing that in every poll we see is that people's minds are being changed quite rapidly in terms of supporting Palestinian rights. But the the response of the opposition is really to to, to play dirty right yeah um, and smear like you know to smear any any anything critical of Israel as anti-semitic which of course is an anti-semitic trope right because they're conflating Jewish identity with an unquestioning support of the Israeli government that's right. which is something that right. so many generations of Jews have pushed back against that's right, right. Um, and Sarah can you talk about your political personal evolution on this issue? Sure. Um, so I really first got involved with uh, Palestinian human rights after it's really when I got to college. Um, 
I was raised in a Jewish household um, and Israel, Palestine really wasn't something we talked about. Um, Had you been to Israel? I hadn't. Um, I know birthright was something that came up often. My parents would mention it to me. I was lucky in the sense that I think my parents did make some effort to show that this was like a two sort of side issue. They didn't just uh, sort of frame it as like, well, there's Israel and, you know, you're going to go there one day. (laughs) Um, But um, I think when I got to college, I was really, I I started talking to people um, from uh, JPP. um, And honestly, I really did talk to people from both sides. I think a a pushback I've heard from my family often is like, oh, well, you got to listen to both sides. And I did. But I think what I realized is, you know, a lot of my Jewish education uh, was tied into social justice. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was like a huge value, human rights. That was like a a very important part of my Jewish upbringing. And I think the more I was beginning to learn about these human rights abuses against Palestinians, I just felt like that was something that I had to become involved in. I had to start advocating uh, for Palestinian human rights. Um, Otherwise, it was almost like insulting to my Jewish values that I was brought up with. And what, what was your Jewish education? Um, was it a, were you, was it a Hebrew school thing? Was it a secular thing? What was the, um, I went to Hebrew school. I did my mitzvah, the whole thing. Um, my family, was, uh, sort of more that we weren't that religious. It was more, we, we practiced all the holidays. Um, my grandparents, my grandparents are very conservative, so we often would, you know, attend services with them. Conservative Jews, like religious-wise, not politically. Yeah, religious-wise. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it was definitely always a, a, had a presence in my life. And I think, like, culturally, my family is very Jewish, religion aside, too. Right. Um, which definitely impacted a lot of, lot of the way I view the world. And, yeah. Yeah. Like the principle of tikkun olam? Yes. Or, which tikkun is olam was very, very important to my friend. I think there was literally, like, I had a year in Hebrew school where that was, like, the main theme right. of what we were learning about. And that, that definitely struck me. Which is Hebrew for repair the world. Yes. And it's a social justice um, principle, right? Yes. Um. And, and what about uh, you, Rebecca? How did you get to where you are on this issue? Well, it's a longer story. I have way more, <laughs> way more years Somewhere to talk about. But um, um, I, also, I grew up in, a, in, a, in, a, in the conservative stream of Judaism also in the synagogue that my grandparents founded. Um, my father's sister actually, um, what you say, you say you make Aliyah. Right. When you, when you move to Israel, which the, the translation from the Hebrew is going up, so yeah. it sort of tells you it has an ideological component right. to it. So my aunt made Aliyah and moved to a religious national kibbutz right after college, and then my grandparents followed her there. And your family was raised, I mean, you were raised in I was raised in, in the U.S. Yeah. in New Jersey, New Jersey uh, specifically. Um, so my my father's entire family was in Israel by the time I was born, and my parents actually went to Israel for about a year and a half. I think to figure out if they wanted to do the same thing, and ultimately they decided they didn't. And so I was born in the U.S., um, but always very connected to Israel because of my grandparents and my aunt and uncle, and eventually my my cousins being there. And so we were going back and forth my whole childhood, um, and. You know, I didn't question much as a child. I also, you know, went to Hebrew school. I always say it was like Holocaust Israel, Holocaust Israel, right. kind of like Hebrew school education that right. we got, which I think it's so impoverished, honestly. Yeah. Like I belong to a reconstructionist synagogue in Brooklyn now, and both my daughters, my younger daughter was just bought mitzvah a couple oh, weeks ago. Tov. Thank you. Um, you know, and the, the education they're going to get is so much more spiritual right. and is so much more rich, and they're learning about the histories of Jewish communities all over the world. Right, and yeah. so, I, you know, I, I regret that the focus on Israel and on Jewish history, and of course, 
this is an earlier time. The Holocaust was less far away than it is right. now. But that, even that being said, like I wish they had done more. You know, I, I regret that form of, of Hebrew school education right. that was so focused on that. Um, and you could take the Holocaust. I mean, people have done this, right? You point to the Holocaust not as kind of a justification for what Israel does, which some people do, right? right? But you can also, if you're going to do never again, right? There are people, there are even Holocaust survivors who have been like, this is why, because I we went through this, this is precisely why we have to, you know, respect the humanity Absolutely. of Palestinians. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm definitely not saying people shouldn't learn yeah. that. Oh, no, no. I, I know you weren't yeah, saying yeah. that. I was just yeah. thinking and that I that's another way of, yeah. Within the Jewish community, right. which has been there for a long time, which is like, never again for us exactly never again for everyone right right, right. i think like that very much informs james the way james right works. exactly what we're saying is the lesson we need to learn is never again for everyone and right. that's what leads to our focus on solidarity yeah safety for all people um universal values of justice for all people and all that sort of thing and i do think you know it, it does flow from there right um, yeah it's funny just last week we were talking about stephen miller whose uncle has spoken out yeah. stephen miller who worked for mm-hmm. trump who initiated a lot of these hiring firings um, and they fired the um, Chris, Christian Nielsen, who was the head of the Homeland Security, for being too soft, basically. I mean, she's right. a woman who separated children from their families. Um, and Stephen Miller's uncle has c- gone on television, and he's like, I'm a private guy. I'm, I think he's a neuroscientist or something. He's like, but I have to say that, you know, if my, if, if my family had been treated the way that Stephen Miller wants people to be treated now, I wouldn't exist because my family would have gone up the chimneys, you know, in um, the Holocaust, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been born. My sister wouldn't have been born. Stephen, his, his nephew, wouldn't have been born. And we were talking about how you can identify with that, or you can not identify with it, and you can say never again, just for this group of people. In which case, there's no solidarity, right. or you can see it as part of a larger, you know. And of course, the irony is that, or not the irony, but during the Holocaust, it was Jews. It was, you know, I mean, now we would say LGBTQ people. Um, communists, you know, there were a variety of people who were targeted. Roma, yeah. yeah, the Roma, right. Yeah. Um, people with disabilities. So uh, it was a ironically intersectional, uh, <laughs> fraud, you know, genocide. Um, so sorry, I cut you off though. We were oh, talking no, about okay. this. Yeah, so, anyway, again. so I, you know, I, and then I, you know, skip forward a few years, I became politicized in various ways and I began to identify um, on the left. I was, this was the 90s, I was working on things like fighting Clinton's welfare reform plan right. that dates me. Um, but I, and I think this is very typical of this generation and of my generation, of every Jewish generation. I felt like I it was too hard to deal with, you know, to deal with this issue. I didn't think I knew enough to have an argument with my father about right. it. I was scared yeah. to challenge my yeah. community, I used, my yeah, rabbi, yeah. to like step out from like what the sort of cozy community was. Right. Um, and so I avoided it, even though I had this like strong left analysis. And for me, it was the second intifada um, that changed that. And um, you know, I was living in San Francisco at the time, and. Um, you know, I, I remember a very specific incident, which um, some people remember where there was a, actually a picture on the front page of the New York Times, which I don't know that we would see that right now, um, of a young boy whose name is Mohammed Dora, who was four years old, being held in his father's arms um, while they were under fire. And, you know, the caption was that he'd been killed a, a moment later. And I was wow. just horrified. And I wrote to a friend of mine who is Palestinian. Um, and I, you know, and I, and I said to him, like, I can't believe this. This is not, you know, this is not Jewish values. Right, this yeah. is not us. And like, to his internal credit, he didn't write back to me and say, like, what is wrong with you? How have you not known about this? Right, yeah. He wrote back to me and was like, I'm so glad you're thinking about this now. Yeah. You know, by the way, if you're interested in this, I could tell you more about it. Right. You know, and I've really taken that as a model ever since. Because again, people jump in and, and 
in all different places right. of what they know. And so you have to be ready to meet people where they are and uh, believe they have the capacity to change. Um, he was obviously being very generous. Right. Um, and I give him a lot of credit for that. But, I, you know, that's a very important piece of it is that you need to sort of, like, people have their moments. And certainly, like, the second intifada was a moment for people my age. For some people, it was the first intifada. For some people, it was Sabrin Shatila, which was in the 80s. For some people, it was the Gaza War in 2014. Right. Um, so there's people coming in all the time, and you have to be ready to take, take the time to... Um, to, to bring them along. Yeah, and not shame them. Be like, where were you? Yeah. yeah it's and not it was, good organizing. Right, honestly. it's not yeah. good organizing. But once the, I think what helped is that because I already had a sort of left framework, right. once I had the nerve to face it, yeah. then I could fit it straight in. Like, it was very clear to me that, like, unequal citizens, I didn't, don't believe right. unequal citizenship right. based on ethnicity or race mm, or religion. Right. So how could I justify that? You know, until yeah. then I was able to fit it in pretty easily. Right. Um, and so that shifted a lot for me. It's funny, last night you said, on Monday night at the event at NYU, um, you said that the right wing is ascendant, but the left wing is ascendant too. And Mark Lamont Hill, who was fired from CNN, and they wanted to fire him at Temple University where he works, he said that there's an asterisk um, that says except for Palestine, you know, on on contract negotiations or or free speech issues, you know. And you said that it's getting harder and harder for pro- people who progress identify as progressive to carve out Palestine. That's like this exception, mm-hmm. right? And there is this thing called PEP, progressive except on Palestine, mm-hmm. and that's getting less and less kind of um, defensible and less of uh, the norm. I mean, it's cr- I can't believe how much things have changed like Absolutely. over a year. I mean, I think Om- Ilan Omar has a lot, I mean, a lot of things, she's both a symptom and I think part of the reason why things are changing. I think that the attacks on her were so, it's so interesting. Like, I really didn't think people would weather it the way... I didn't think she would weather it. I mean, watching her go after Elliot Abrams, yeah. like, mm-hmm. right after she was smeared as an anti-Semite was amazing. Yeah. And by the way, if you want to be an, an ally against anti-Semitism, please don't tell anyone that Elliot Abrams is Jewish. That's how you can do your part. <laughs> you don't want to be associated with him. Um, we have to go. It was so fast. But any last words, Sarah and then Rebecca, on, on what you want people to know about, um, what you're working on? Anything you want our listeners to know? Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I think. What do you guys are? What are you guys are working on? Anything like that? Yeah. So, at NYU, we just passed this resolution on human rights, uh, the Palestinian human rights. Um, I mean, I think we are. We're still trying to work to get that uh, to be passed by the university. Uh, the student government passed it to right. clarify. Um, you know, one of the things that was sort of disheartening is right after we passed it in the student government, the university almost like immediately released a statement saying, we're not even going to look at this, um, right. which again goes back to that idea of, you know, progress- I don't know if I'd call it NYU progressive, but I'm like progressive except for on right. Palestine. Palestine yeah. Um, and yeah, I think we're we're not going to give up the fight. We're going to keep working on that uh, resolution. I know there have been talks from members of our student government um, with university representatives um, about how to approach this matter and how to approach this resolution. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what we're hoping for in the future. On our side, I forgot to mention our biggest campaign, which is called Deadly Exchange, which is about oh, yes. ending um, U.S.-Israeli police exchanges, which is a very, very exciting campaign. We've had a number of really exciting wins, um, and it's, we're going to be gearing up again this spring and summer. Uh, but you can learn all about it at our website, which is jewishvoiceforpeace.org. Uh, if anyone wants to become a member, the dues are $18 a year. Nice. Um, and you can sign up for our daily news update. You can sign up for a regular, you know, for our email list. Um, great video. You guys have a great video, like a, a one-on-one. In, intro to Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Oh, yes. It's great. Yes. So check it's out the website. website. Yeah. yeah.
Don't forget to check out my follow-up interview with Zijelani where he talks about being kind of low-key censored by the Center for American Progress. And you can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show.